lesson 14, <laughs> Love and Light. Um, and I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're going to talk today about um, love and light, but I have four different points. Um, we'll talk about love, then we'll talk about not love, <laughs> we'll talk about getting a reality check, and then finally about light and what it means to be a child of the light. So first of all, love. Our culture is big on love and is, seems to be very confused by what love actually is. And anytime we get into a conversation with somebody who's saying, well, you know, love is love, or God is love, so he wouldn't care, or, you know, he, we need to clarify, what, what are we talking about? Um, but verse 1 says, we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. And so we all know from Scripture that God is love. We're told that in different places. Um, he's not only love. That's one thing that we need to point out. He is also holy, righteous, just. But love is such a central, fundamental attribute of his character that it's carried out in every, every other aspect of his character and his nature. Um, love is so much a part of who God is that it can be said that God is love. Now, it's also said that God is holy, and holy is holy, holy, holy. So if there's one that's even more true of God, if, if you can even put it that way, um, it's holy. And so anytime we have a conversation about God's character and love, we also his love is also expressed in holiness. But we are God's beloved children, we're told here. Be imitators of God as God's beloved children. Um, First John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And John also says um, earlier, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. I just, 
want us to, you know, where Paul talks about, he prays, you know, that we would get the height and depth and length and width of, you know, Christ's love. If we could just get into our souls, our beings, our fiber, not just our minds, but down into our hearts and into who we are, how much we are loved, how much each one of us is loved by God, that he knows us personally, each one of you, by name, how many hairs are on your head. He records every one of your tears on his scroll. He's, we are so loved. And if we could get that, to be able to live out of that love, we would be able to do what we're called to do in so many ways. And perfect love casts out fear. You know, if we just could get that. But you're loved. You're loved so deeply, so individually, so perfectly by God. Um, he loved us so much that he adopted us. And we're adopted not just like as a class, but one by one, souls are born into the kingdom of God. He sets his love on us and brings us into his family. So in this, be imitators of God as beloved children. Um, implied in that is that we are recipients of God's love. We're called in other versions, dearly loved children, beloved children. We're recipients of that. Now, you know, some people have never experienced what it's like to be loved the way they should be, unconditionally, um, to have somebody really, really love them. And, and it's hard when you haven't had somebody love you to know how to love anybody else, you know? So a lot of the problems that we end up having um, are coming from, you know, our own experience or lack of experience with something. Again, is why we just we, we need to begin to grasp and understand and internalize how loved we are because we are recipients of God's love. And you know how families uh, kind of bear a resemblance, like you see somebody and you go, oh, you know, you must be part of this family. Um, my sister and I, people always said we look so much alike, you know, they thought we were twins. Now, we deal with each other up close, and so we just see the differences. But from a distance... Evidently, we look like twins. <laughs> um, but, but you see that in family resemblance. Oh, you know, I can tell you you're part of this family. And we can, you know, we say that about, like, physical appearance, you know, but also about character, about attitude, about values and behavior. A family, each family has a particular feel to it, a particular culture to it, particular values. And so, you know, when your kids are dating somebody, contemplating marriage, one of the things, you know, it, it's not a a deal breaker, but one of the things you want to look into is, well, what kind of family is this person from? You can escape from dysfunctional family, and God rescues, and so don't write somebody off for that reason. But it's good to know ahead of time what you might be dealing with, because we all have this default setting of um, often, you know, what our parents did. Even if at the time we vowed, I will never do this, I will not be like my parent. Um, I noticed that when I had children, all of a sudden it was like, all of a sudden you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you just fall back to, uh, you know, ah, and, and you start doing the things that are familiar to you. And so that's part of why in Ephesians, Paul is telling us that we need to consciously put off the old man, the old dysfunction, the old things that, that belong to the flesh and the devil, and put on the new man, the new creation that God made that's to be like God. And so we're constantly looking to Jesus, looking to God. What am I supposed to be like now? Because I kind of have this deficit from the old man here that I'm fighting with. And um, we need to keep looking to Jesus, keep looking to his word. But we, we've been adopted into the family of God. 
and we want to begin to show that family resemblance. You know, it fascinates me, too, about, like, a husband and wife that have been together very long. They start to look like each other, you know? You, you kind of take on that expression of the people around you. You begin to um, think like they do. You know, the longer you stay married, you, you, you know what the other person's thinking. You can see it coming, you know? Um, we, we want to internalize our new identity as children of God. We want to bear the family resemblance. And love is the unmistakable character of God's family. It's the, the distinguishing mark of Christians. There, there are a number of distinguishing marks, but love is one of the most primary ones. It's how Jesus said um, the world would know that we're his disciples because of love. Um, so... Little children, he's calling us beloved children. Um, The Apostle John often writes to us as my little children. Um, Little children want to please their parents, and they try to be like their parents. Um, Even in dysfunctional, horrible, abusive relationships, very often the child just, you know, they want to love their parent. They want their parent to accept them and to be pleased with them. Um, I remember in one of the churches I belonged to earlier in Dan's military career in another place, um, I was sitting in the congregation watching as the choir director was leading the choir. And her little daughter, she must have been about three or four, uh, probably four, she was pretty articulate. Anyway, she's just looking at her mom and she says to me, when I grow up, I'm going to wear lipstick like my mom. <laughs> you know, she's like, she admired. Now, you know, the kids get older and they don't want to be like mom, but, but little children do, you know. Um, when Lauren, my daughter, was little, uh, it, it was really funny. She, she um, was asked what she wanted to be when she grows up, and uh, she said, you want to be a grandma. <laughs> I'm like, watch, skip right over me. <laughs> And he said, well, we have to be a mother first. And he said, like, no, I just want to be a grandma. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe she had something there. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the people that you love, you want to be like. Um, there was a little boy. Um, I heard this story from a devotional I read, and I can't remember where it was I read it. But it's the story of this uh, little boy who was adopted by an older man um, and the older man had an injury that caused him to limp as he walked. He had a very distinctive walk. You could just see him from far away and know that that was him. And so a friend of his came to visit who had not met his son. And the little son comes out, and he's limping like his dad. And he said, I can tell, I can tell whose son you are. You walk just like your dad. And um, so it's, it's like that. Who, who, who are we going to walk like? We're adopted into God's family because of God loving and forgiving us. And when we love and forgive others, we are showing that family resemblance. We're walking like Jesus, and it can be recognized. Um, To be unloving and unforgiving is to grieve the very spirit of God who dwells in us, who brought us into the family of God. So we're called, in verse 2, to live a life of love. Um, some translations say walk in love, but we've talked about this before. The metaphor is you know, it's, it's the way you walk is the character of your life. And so we're to live a life of love. In other words, walk like Jesus. Um, now, in our culture, as I said at the beginning, love is kind of this vague, squishy thing that's used to justify all sorts of stuff. Um, and one of the big things is love is love, right? 
that has an agenda behind it. it it's used of, okay, well, um, homosexual relationships are okay, or transgender stuff is okay, because, you know, they, they really love someone else. And, yeah, maybe it's not the, you know, heterosexual, but it's okay, because love is love, right? And God is love, and it's all cool, it's all good, right? And I want to say that this is a shallow, fraudulent claim intended to deliberately confuse and create moral anarchy. Um, the world, the way the world, our culture currently tends to define love is any kind of attraction or physical sexual desire. So it could be, could be just you know, affection, you're attracted to somebody as a friend, but very often everything is sexualized in our culture. Um, it's, you have a physical attraction for somebody, and they call that love. But we need to ask, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean when you say love? Um, and what the, what the world's version of love comes down to is, I want you, I desire you to gratify me. Um, and, and we say we're, we're in love with somebody. Um, how much of that is we love the way they make us feel? And then later on, once you're married for a while, and they don't make you feel that way, all of a sudden, you know, our culture, that's, that's their concept of love, and all of a sudden then they don't know what to do, and they think, oh my goodness, I don't love this person, or this person doesn't love me. So that kind of love is not what Christians are commanded here. That is not biblical love. First of all, there are different types of love, even the right kind of love. Um, there is romantic sexual love that is appropriate among Christians between a husband and wife. Uh, God invented that, and it's a good thing. He also puts parameters around it. Friendship, affection love, you know, that we find somebody that we just click with or we share something in common with, that's another type of love, and that, that's a good gift of God. Friends are a wonderful gift of God. There's family love, like the love that a mother has for her child or parents have for their children or, or siblings have for each other, that kind of love. And that, that has sort of a, a different makeup than a friend love. You know, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. You know, so if you choose friends that we are naturally drawn to, but people that are born into a family, you're kind of stuck with them and you learn to love them and you have a duty to them and you feel an obligation. So you might fight like cats and dogs, but if somebody from the outside attacks one, then the whole family is after, you know, to defend. So, you know, that's my job to make them miserable, not yours. <laughs> so there's different kinds of love. Um, but the scripture also teaches that there are appropriate loves, and there are also inappropriate loves, dysfunctional loves. Loves You can actually love something that you should not love. And we see that throughout the scripture. Um, we are commanded not to love certain things, like do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we need to choose between loves. Um, and the world there, of course, does not mean unsaved sinners, or the planet, it means the system of the world, the desires of the flesh, of the eyes, and pride of life, it goes on to say. So the things that the world loves and values, very often Christians are commanded not to love those things. Um, idolatry, throughout the scripture, God compares his relationship to his people. Um, he, he uses the metaphor of marriage, like I'm, I'm, I'm married to Israel, I'm married, Jesus is married to the church, it's a metaphor. Um, so he talks about being jealous when his people go after other gods. It's like spiritual adultery. 
And um, so we're commanded not to love idols, not to take their names on our lips, not to worship them, not to offer things to them, not to love their festivals, not to eat their food, that type of thing. So um, love is love. Well, sometimes we're commanded not to love as Christians. Don't love idols. Don't love money. Um, Again, money's good. You can use it, but don't love money like to an idolatrous level. Um, humans have a choice. We have a will, and we are called to self-control. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. We don't, when it comes to love, we don't have to act like dogs in heat. We are not animals. (laughs) Yes, we can have very strong attraction, inclination, but the Holy Spirit gives us self-control, self-mastery, and we're to be working towards that. So, we don't have to act on every impulse we ever have. It's not wise or healthy to act on anything. You know, we talk about people that are, you know, on the spectrum, how they, they have no filter or something like that. That's not a good thing. You know, we want to um, have control of ourselves, not have our desires controlling us. So there are appropriate and inappropriate things that you can love. There are different types of love, but we're specifically talking here about God's love. And that you've heard before is called agape love. And, and God's love, the way scripture portrays it, and I hope you all got to do that in your homework, look up a bunch of those scriptures. It is faithful, loving kindness. It is commitment to doing what is right and best for the person who's loved, even at great cost to yourself. So think of, again, David's, um, how he sought out Mephibosheth to show the loving kindness of God to him. Um, He didn't have to. He didn't need anything from Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth wasn't going to do anything great for him, but he chose to love this person and to show loving kindness to them. God's love is like that. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be achieved. And so sometimes when we desire somebody's ultimate good, we really love that. And you see it especially you know, with our children or, or people in our family, nieces, nephews, people that we care about. There are times when we see what they're doing is really harming them. It's hurting them. And, and we hate that because we love them. So um, God's love is that faithful, committed, loving kindness, committed to the good of uh, the person that you love, even at cost to yourself. And we see that um, most perfectly in Jesus Christ's example. He gave himself up for us. Um, So in verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Jesus Love God's love in Jesus for us is shown most clearly on the cross. Um, he was willing to do that out of love for us. Um, and we're told here that, that this Jesus offering himself on our behalf was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, you know, it's, it's the nature of love to give things, right? To give to the person that you love, give offerings. And 
love itself is a fragrant offering and the way it expresses itself. But I was thinking of the woman who broke the perfume and poured it all out on Jesus. Um, a fragrant offering. And often in our brokenness like that as when we um, really pour out that sweet aroma of Christ. Um, our lives give off an aroma. So do we smell like the foul selfishness of the devil or the sweet smell of Christ? We want to be the sweet smell of Christ, and the way to do that is self-sacrificing love, which is totally different from what the world says is love. Again, the world says, um, I love you because you make me feel a certain way. If you stop making me feel that way, then I don't love you anymore. Um, it's about, oh, wow, I'm attracted to you. Um, I want to gratify myself through you. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is a commitment. It is a devotion to that, what is best for that other person, even at cost to yourself. So we're, we're called to be imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Um, and I want to point out that it's a sacrifice to God. We may have self-sacrificing love for, for our brothers and sisters like we're called to, but the sacrifice is made to God, not to them. God is the one we worship, not that other person. Um, our hope is in God. It is not in that person. It is God that we desire to please, not that person. If we are making sacrifices to that person, <laughs> again, they can't bear the weight of our worship. They cannot compensate us for the sacrifices we make. And so our desire is to please the Lord. He will compensate regardless of how they receive. So our sacrifices to God, our hope is in God. Only he is able to repay us. Um, we don't want to be loving to appease people. We want to be loving to please God. So not fearing man, fearing God and loving him. So, so we're called to love, but then what's not love? Not love is what I was talking about our culture doing, and, and people think this is love. But Paul says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. So um, there's appropriate and inappropriate behavior within God's family among his children. Proper behavior among the saints, again, when, when Paul uses the word saints, um, it's in the early uh, biblical use of the word saint, not what saint has come to be thought of in our culture. Um, you know, you hear saint, somebody's a saint, you think, oh, you know, they're kind of anemic and they glow. And they, you know. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about one another, God's people. If you are part of God's family um, right now, this is what we're called to. Some things are appropriate for us. Some things are not appropriate for us. Um, so what love is not. This is the kind of a counterfeit love. So he's just said we're supposed to love, but not this stuff. This is not love. This is not real love. And so he says, not even a hint of this should be among you, or it should not even be named among you. Now, again, this, this doesn't mean that we never talk about sexual immorality or impurity. Obviously, Paul's writing about it, and I think the church needs to do a much better job about talking about these things. I think what's um, 
meant here is not that you never say it, and we'll get more into that. It's, it's, you don't behave that way, and you don't talk about it like a good thing, and you're not um, being suggestive in your conversation and things like that. Um, and he's saying this, these, these things should not be part of the Christian community. Um, sexual immorality and impurity. I've put them together. I think they are kind of saying almost the same thing. And this is unrestrained sexual behavior. So it's external actions, unrestrained. Um, and we've, Paul's already said in Romans and earlier in Ephesians that, you know, this, this is the Gentile, the unsaved uh, pre-conversion life. You know, it's just more and more orgies, continual lust for more, degrading. Um, and he's saying this is not appropriate for Christians. So that's the external actions. Covetousness, again, it, or some of yours say greed, um, that applies to more than money. In this case, it's specifically referring to sort of a greed for selfish gratification, specifically sexually. And that's an internal attitude. It's, it's a matter of the heart. So you have the behavior, but God's always also looking at the heart. So this covetousness, this looking at other people, dehumanizing them, wanting to use them for yourself, but not really loving or caring for them, is inappropriate among Christians. And then he goes on to say um, there shouldn't be filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. And we talked some about that last week. But basically, this is just indecent talk. It's obscenity. Um, it's a verbal expression of what's in your heart. So you have the actions that are not appropriate for a Christian. You have the inward attitude of the heart that is not appropriate for a Christian. And what does the scripture say? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Again, God's after the heart. And so um, one of my commentaries said, a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. That's what his command about foolish talk and coarse joking. Not appropriate for Christians. And then he says, instead there should be thanksgiving. Which at first, you know, as you're reading it, you think, well, what? How does that fit? <laughs> you know, you think there should be like noble speech and encouraging speech. And of course there should be those things. But it's interesting that he puts thanksgiving here as sort of a counter to this filthy talk course of joking, um, dehumanizing attitude of the heart, the selfish, selfish love. Um, he says there should be thanksgiving instead. And so what stands out to me about this is, first of all, thanksgiving is an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of gratitude instead of greed. You know, you're thankful for the gifts of God, not just greedy for more and more and more and taking, taking. Um, so your, your attitude is grateful. What God gives you, you are thankful for and you enjoy. Secondly, Thanksgiving has an object. There's somebody that you give thanks to, right? A lot of people, it, we have Thanksgiving as a holiday, and they give thanks, but they have no idea like who they're giving thanks to. We're, we're giving thanks to God. Christians are always to be giving thanks. So there's a focus on God, even in the context of what I'm enjoying, what I want, what I love, what I think I need, the focus is always on God, and I am thankful for what he gives me. And so everything that I have is in the context, the awareness of God, if I'm being thankful. And then thirdly, thanksgiving um, is the gracious conversation that counters the foolish, dirty, filthy conversation. Um, it is honorable conversation, appropriate, considerate, appreciative, 
not vulgar, degrading, suggestive, inciting lust. And sometimes people can get a mindset, well, oh, I'm not going to actually you know, go act out. I'm just going to talk about it. You know? And it's it, it sort of you know, one thing leads to another. So again, it's not that we don't talk about it in the sense of this is reality and this is what we deal with as Christians, but in the sense of, oh, I'm just going to you know, make all these sexual jokes. Of course, I'm not going to sleep with somebody in the church. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just being funny. Um, no, we are not to speak in a way that tears other people down or that leads other people into sin. We are to speak only what is beneficial and builds them up and helps them. So Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And everything we're commanded to give thanks. And thanksgiving is one of those really, another one of those really um, distinguishing marks of Christian life. We should be marked by our thankfulness, not by our greed and our grumbling. But think about this. As Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We're to do everything. We're commanded to do everything in word and deed in his name. In reality, we do do everything in his name. But are we doing it well in his name? Are we doing it the things that he wants us to do? Um, would Jesus approve of our behavior, our attitudes, our conversation? Would you do and say these things if Jesus were standing right here? Because he is. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, Paul's just pointing out these are not appropriate. If, if you couldn't enjoy this with Jesus standing right next to you, um, and if, if Jesus would not want his name attached to whatever it is you're doing, then it's inappropriate for God's family. Then he goes on to give us, um, I've called it a reality check, um, verse 5 through 7. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So we've talked about this before, how our culture... Um, is always pushing the limits and, and, and just saying, you know, there's no judgment. You know, there's no such thing as sin. If there is a God, he's fine with it. He loves you just the way you are. Again, you know, what do you mean by that? Yes, he loves you just the way you are. He loves the worst sinners. But he's, he's not going to leave you in that condition. <laughs> he's going to redeem you and heal you. But um, he says, there are consequences to these behaviors. These are specifically forbidden to Christians. And if you engage in these and you don't give them up, I'm not talking about occasionally falling. I'm talking about this is, this is your mindset. This is your attitude. This is you have no intention of stopping these things. There are consequences. First is you have no inheritance in Christ's kingdom. And that's not only talking about eternal reward, eternal life in the hereafter. It's talking like right now, you're an imposter. You are not part of Christ's kingdom. If this is the orientation of your, your being and you don't feel any guilt about this, you don't intend to change it, you are not part of Christ's kingdom. This is not the way people in Christ's kingdom are. It's not our nature. Um, second consequences is God's wrath upon the wicked. 
And again, our culture is like, God doesn't punish. There's no such thing as hell. You know, God's cool with this. God's love, of course. So he couldn't punish anybody, right? No, we're specifically told because of these things, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And then our culture is like, well, that's mean. You know, God's mean. And so God's the bad guy because he's not cool with what you're doing. And our culture does that to us, too. It's like if you say somebody you don't agree with a particular behavior, well, that's hate speech. You hate me because you don't just accept me as I am. And, you know, love is different from tolerant. Love can be very fierce at times. Love is protective. Love really wants what's best for that person. And when you see them heading down the wrong path, because you love them, you will speak. God's wrath is coming on the wicked. And here's the thing. You don't have to be (laughs) under God's wrath. Um, God has made a way. God loves us so much. The worst sinner, he loves so much. He's promised never to turn away anyone who comes to him and asks for forgiveness. Um, And I think the devil's lie is he lets us go so far, pushes us so far, and then he says, you've crossed the line. There's no coming back from this. God cannot possibly love you or forgive you. You've done this. And you feel trapped and ensnared. I'll tell you what, anything you repent of, that you come to Christ for, he is able to forgive and cleanse and heal. And Paul says, um, you were this before, but, but you've been cleansed, you've been healed, you've been forgiven, you've been transformed. So um, there are real consequences of these sins. Uh, no inheritance in Christ's kingdom and God's wrath. And we see this denial of judgment from the beginning, from the earliest chapters of the Bible, who do we see doing it? Satan. You know, Satan, his, his, one of his, part of his first lie to Eve in deceiving her was like, did God really say that? Well, you don't have to really um, believe what God said, and you don't have to fear his punishment. He's not, not going to punish you. You're, you're, you're going to get away with this, and you're going to be better off for it. So this denying of God's wrath is a very dangerous thing. And we see throughout the scripture warnings about God's wrath. And, you know, God's not up there with a big fly swatter just waiting to get us. He's up, he, he has given warning after warning after warning and said, please, please repent of your sins. Choose life. Come to me. I will forgive. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. We can deal with this. But um, when we're like, okay, God's mean. He doesn't like me, I'm going to be his enemy, and he's mean because he's going to send me to hell. But totally the wrong mindset. So we've been warned about this deception throughout the scripture. And, and why are we warned? Because there's a danger of being deceived by this. Scripture repeatedly warns us about false prophets and false teachers who will lead many astray. And that um, you know, we've talked about Thessalonians talks about when the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is revealed, it will be in keeping with the works and the power of Satan. Daniel talks about him misleading people with flattery. Oh, you're just good, just the way you are. You're fine. You're wonderful. You don't need to repent of anything. Um, And then um, Thessalonians talks about the power of Satan, which is in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. All will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. 
We're told that. We're warned. And Paul says these, these are empty words. In other words, insincere. They're not true. These people that are telling you, oh, you're fine just the way you are. You don't need to repent. This is not sin. God's cool with this. They are empty words. You you cannot trust them. You can't rely on them. Jude talks about um, these kind of people being clouds without rain or autumn trees without fruit, uprooted twice dead. These people, you know, so the, the picture of a cloud floating along without rain, it's in an agricultural society, you need rain. You want rain. So this cloud comes floating along, and you think, great, it's going to deliver rain. And it doesn't. That's what these people are. They're promising you things that are not true and can't be delivered. Tree without fruit. You know, you're expecting a harvest, and yet the tree doesn't give you anything. That's this type of people and their empty talk. Satan is the deceiver. Um, Peter says in Second Peter 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming that he promised? God's coming in judgment. Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God does judge and punish unrepented wickedness and sin. Again, he's not up there just waiting to get it. Um, We tend to complain, God, why aren't you punishing the sin? Why, why aren't you doing it? And the scripture says it's God's patience because he doesn't want these people to perish. He's giving them plenty of time to repent. Um, but false teachers are currently saying, <laughs> we see it all the time, even in, in many churches, that sexual immorality and deviancy are not sin, that it's hateful to say they are. And because God is love, he won't judge or punish. Love is love. <laughs> no. Jude says in Jude 1.7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Does God hate homosexuals? No. Jesus died for homosexuals. He came to save the sick, to seek the lost to bring healing. He loves us in all of our sin, but he came to um, to save us from it. Why? Why did he have to die a horrible death? So we don't have to. We can have that forgiveness. But if we're not telling people um, that God loves them and there is forgiveness and these things do need to be repented of because remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. There's a whole movement that tries to re-explain what Sodom and Gomorrah was about and say, well, the sin of Sodom wasn't really a sexual sin. It wasn't homosexuality. It was inhospitability. And, you know, there are probably a lot of sins included. But Jude specifically says here um, sexual immorality and perversion were the sins that brought the fire of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. So um, love must call people to repentance and warn of the dangers of the sin. 
You don't have to suffer the punishment of eternal fire that Sodom and Gomorrah did. Um, Turn and be saved is what we say. Come to Jesus and live. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So that's the reality check. And then he gets back to living as love, beloved children of God who show that character. We're also, he calls us children of light. Now, light in the scripture, you know, light and darkness, very simple metaphor. Light's good, dark's bad. <laughs> light is righteousness, darkness is wickedness. Um, light is truth, darkness is lies, all that. We get it. Um, but light has to do with openness, transparency, nothing to hide. And so we mentioned before where it says that um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We make God out to be a liar because he says we're sinful. But if we confess our sins, we bring it into the light, confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So we're living in transparency. Even when it comes to our sin, we're not hiding our sin. We're bringing it to God and saying, please forgive me again, cleanse me, help me with this. Um, so, So to be children of light is to have that character of transparency. James refers to God as the father of light, father of the heavenly lights. John says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. You were darkness, now you're light. And this shows that your identity, your essence has changed, and now your character needs to be changing too, your character and your behavior and your speech, your heart, your attitudes, all that is changing because you were darkness, but you are light now. So walk as a child of the light. He goes on to say in verse 9, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So goodness, um, I think this is used primarily in the sense of not good as in morally perfect, but goodness as you're good to people. It kind of implies generosity with it. Goodness, righteousness, justice, integrity of character, um, and truth, uh, Again, some of these, they, they kind of overlap with each other, but truth. Our world is full of lies. We are to not only not lie, we are to speak truth, we've already been told. So these things please God. Goodness, righteousness, truth. All of these things please God. And so when he says, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord, I think what's being pointed out there is there are very many ways um, that we see these things expressed. And it's not just in churchy ways or in... Christian things, supposedly. Um, Christians are to embrace all these things, the good things, the righteous things, the truthful things. And we can join with unbelievers in these things even. They're good things. They're good for the world. They're life-affirming. They are in keeping with the character of God and how he made the world. Um, So I think that's really good for us because I think as Christians too often, those of us who come from a conservative sort of legalistic background, we're very concerned with everything that's wrong and bad and trying to stay away from it. And here we're told to basically seek out good, righteous, truthful things and be part of those, encourage them in the world, Um, find ways to um, make these things real in the world. So we're to be children of light. And the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. And he says the works of darkness, on the other hand, he's given us a contrast. Darkness, then, is kind of portraying ignorance, 
error and evil. He says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So first of all, these works of darkness, they're unfruitful. They don't deliver on their promises. Like, um, like it says in, in Jude of being this tree that doesn't produce fruit or a cloud that doesn't give water. Um, they're unfruitful. These things that you're investing in, you're doing because you think they're going to help you. They're going to satisfy your soul or you make some deal with the devil or the world to get where you want. It will not bring you joy. It will be your destruction. It's unfruitful. Secondly, they do these things in secret. So these are not things that you would be doing in the daylight out in the open generally. <laughs> Although our culture is getting pretty close to that. <laughs> you know, they're so far gone. But generally speaking, these are things that are done under the cover of darkness. They're not things that you want your mom to find out about or um, your neighbors because, you know, nothing good goes on in secret. I mean, we're told to do good things in secret, but generally speaking with human nature, um, if somebody is keeping secrets and you're not allowed to know, that's a dangerous thing. Nothing good goes on. We need to shine light. And so in politics, when, when our... When our politicians say, oh, you know, you're not allowed to know this. We're going to keep this a secret from you for another, you know, 75 years, and then maybe, you know, your kids will be able to know the truth. Can that be anything good that they're hiding there? No. Um, My dad hated secrets. (laughs) He would just get mad, even if you're, like, hiding a birthday party from him or something. He's like, nothing good happens in the secret. Um, And more and more I'm like, yeah, you're right. Um, so they're unfruitful, they're secret things. Oh, so here's another example of it. You know, during all the COVID restrictions that we had, um, people weren't allowed to go out and congregate, so kids were doing school online. Well, that shed some light on a lot of things. All of a sudden, parents are actually seeing and hearing what their children are being taught in school, and they're going, oh, no, 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 no. And in some of the states, they were actually trying to make it illegal for parents to watch it. And in in Virginia, Loudoun County, the big flashpoint between um, parents and the school board, um, they went after the parents. The FBI targeted the parents that were trying to bring to light what was being done, the people who were perpetrating these dark deeds. You know, they're the ones in power, so they're they're not being called on the carpet for it. Secret. Stay away from secret societies. <laughs> Stay away from um, any any kind of. Oh, you're in the secret in crowd. We're going to do this. That, that, that's not Christian. Christians do not live in secret. We live in the light. Um, and these these works are shameful. Even even the world will see these things as shameful, which is why these people hide it. They do these things in secret. They don't want to be exposed. They will send the FBI after you to shut you down. (laughs) They will assassinate you as a whistleblower. They will do whatever they can to keep it a secret because once it comes to light, they can't keep doing what they're doing. There will be too much outrage. Paul said these things are, you know, it's shameful even to mention what's gone on. Shame, shame, shame. 